Welcome to the Sui Generis Show, your unique perspective on everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be catching up with developments in the Ahmad Arbery case. We're gonna be exploring prosecutorial misconduct allegations against a former New York City prosecutor, Linda Fairstein, and discussing the firing squad as a new option for executing individuals in South Carolina. In segment two, as promised, we'll be moving on to part four of our closer look at field sobriety testing with a deep dive into the one-legged stand. To make sure you don't miss an episode, Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And look to the law office of BrianJones.com and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. So Erica, did you see in the news this week that the governor of Georgia has signed a bill repealing citizens' ability to enforce a citizen's arrest following the Ahmaud Arbery killing? Yeah, I did. And I find it amazing that people still feel like they can do a citizen's arrest. I mean, I never knew that this was something that people actually did. I mean, you you hear about it once in a while in the movies, usually in a, a comedy sketch, but wow, this does not sound funny at all. Yeah, it's it's very serious. And, and in, in Ahmaud Arbery's case, it was life or death situation. Exactly. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what was the substance of the law that was repealed exactly? The law dates back to 1863 and at that time and since then has broadly allowed residents to detain anyone they even suspect of a crime. The Civil War era law was meant to allow white people to capture slaves that were fleeing their enslavement and has been used since then to justify lynchings of black individuals. Now, the new law has adjusted that blanket privilege to generally not allow private citizens to detain others. And private citizens can now only use force in self-defense or to prevent a forcible felony like murder or armed robbery. The bill does not affect the rights of businesses, security officers, or anyone else who is detaining somebody or or any business that is detaining somebody who's been suspected of a crime. And it gives law enforcement the power to grant arrests outside, uh, to effectuate arrests outside of their jurisdiction. So the old law was really designed to keep black people in check, so to speak, from the point of view of of the white power and and legislature. And the new law has now shifted this to to focus the citizen's arrest only on uh, violent incidents. I was wondering, is it possible that people can use citizen's arrest as a defense if they do end up in court? And do you think if so, that they'll still be able to do that? So the citizen's arrest is is a very rarely used, rarely effectuated situation. And if it's validly employed, typically law enforcement won't seek to press charges. County prosecutors won't seek to press charges. Now, if an individual wanted to raise that as an affirmative defense, um, they can still do it. There's in really almost every aspect of the criminal code, 
there is the ability to use a justification defense um, and get a jury instruction that while the individual violated the, the statute and did so with the requisite uh, culpable mind, they did so for a good reason and a reason that essentially overcomes the wrongfulness of the conduct itself. Now that's a sort of burden shifting situation where in, in most jurisdictions, the accused is gonna have to carry the burden of demonstrating that their actions were justified. And in the case of a citizen's arrest, that would be the factual basis of the justification. That's really good to know. I mean, people are gonna to have to start thinking about their actions before they go running into a situation that they shouldn't be in and don't have the training or the knowledge to really do the right thing. So can you tell me, is this something that Ohio has? They have a citizen's arrest law? In Ohio, only police officers can arrest individuals for misdemeanors without a warrant. However, we do have a citizen's arrest law to arrest uh, an individual when when the arrestor has a reasonable ground to believe that a felony is being committed. And in that situation, the person who wants to effectuate that citizen's arrest has to first notify the person that they're going to arrest that they are intending to arrest them and notify them of the offense which they are intending to arrest them for. Now, this is an affirmative defense, as we discussed, that in many jurisdictions, and in particular in Ohio, uh, that the, the accused, the defendant, would then have to prove at trial. And what's key under Ohio law is that notice requirement. So uh, yes, it's available, Erica, and it, it's, it's been very well spelled out. You know, the, the actions of the alleged actions of the individuals who are accused of killing Ahmaud Arbery would not meet this standard because there's no evidence that I have seen that they expressed an intention to arrest or the basis of their arrest to Mr. Arbery. That makes a lot of sense. I'm glad that they didn't get away with doing the wrong thing. Speaking of people who've gotten away with doing the wrong thing, Erica, did you see the news out of New York City? that prosecutor Linda Fairstein has been exposed for covering up sex offenses for New York's wealthy and elite. It's a good example of someone helping the wealthy commit crimes. So who is the prosecutor accused of misconduct? So Linda Fairstein was the former head of the New York City Sex Crimes Unit and she was the prosecutor responsible for the reprehensible prosecution of the Central Park Five. You may be familiar with Ava DuVernay's 2019 Netflix drama, When They See Us, detailing the anguish that the five black teenagers experienced when they were beaten into giving false confessions and prosecuted in 1989 for the murder of a jogger. They were ultimately innocent and those convictions were reversed. Ms. Fairstein is the villain in that show. She's also, ironically, the inspiration for Law & Order SVU and Detective Benson, the prim a primary protagonist of that show. She even serves on Mariska Haggerty's charity board, who's the actress that plays Detective Benson in that show. 
Now, since leaving the sex crimes unit in 2002, she's remained in close contact with her successor, Martha Bashford, and this relationship is the soil from which her misconduct grew. What is she accused of doing wrong? So she's accused of massaging, manipulating, and outright intervening on behalf of New York's wealthy and elite who were accused of sex crimes following her departure from the office. In particular, Harvey Weinstein hired her as a consultant in 2015, and she pushed a narrative both through the New York City Prosecutor's Office and the media through to the public that the accuser was unreliable and leading and ultimately leading to the office not filing charges. In 2012, she intervened on behalf of a wealthy medical student who was charged with multiple counts of upskirting or taking photographs of women and their private areas without their knowledge. Now, ultimately, she was able to get most of those charges against him dismissed and settled with a plea deal to one charge. Now, what's, what's interesting here is that she's not acting in her capacity as a defense attorney, but rather bartering and wheeling and dealing on her influence within the prosecutor's office and manipulating the prosecutor's office into giving better deals to wealthy individuals. Now, Fairstein used her relationship as the unit head to guide prosecutions and manipulate outcomes for those wealthy individuals so that she could collect consultation fees from them. What's going to happen to her? Are there any repercussions for all of this back alley negotiating? Well, Erica, she's a prosecutor, so no, she won't face any repercussions. The details of this are certainly fodder for the upcoming election for the new district attorney in New York City, but she will face no legal or ethical consequences for her misdeeds. And that's because she's a prosecutor and prosecutors have wide leeway in making charging decisions. And as her successor's responses prove, it's easy to come up with reasons why one case was dismissed and another case wasn't charged that have absolutely nothing to do with the chummy emails and uh, wealthy elitist relationships between the accused and those in power making charging decisions in New York City. Wow, that's disgusting. The wealthy can get away with almost anything in America these days and have been for the entire history of this country. Well, I wish that that weren't true. I'm glad that at least this information is out there and that the people can vote and hopefully get somebody that has more morals and loves America and believes that everyone should be created equally here. Absolutely, Erica. And, and you know, the thing is, is that this may just be the tip of the iceberg. Um, as the records request that was received and disclosed in this case was heavily redacted. So her misconduct and elitist favoritism on behalf of those accused of sex crimes in New York City may be much broader than we even suspect. So we're gonna keep monitoring this story 
uh, as it evolves. Another situation that we're gonna have to keep monitoring as it evolves is the South Carolina legislature's vote to force capital inmates to choose their manner of death, electric chair or firing squad. Did you see this in the news this week, Erica? Yes, I did. And it really disturbs me. <laughs> I can't even imagine how scary it is to face a firing squad. It, it seems like cruel and unusual punishment. So why did South Carolina pass this bill? Currently, South Carolina allows capital inmates to choose their manner of death, electric chair or lethal injection. Because of a nationwide shortage of lethal injection drugs, inmates have by and large chosen lethal injection and, and no executions have been carried out in South Carolina in about 10 years. So the legislature, bound and determined to get some blood on their hands, have passed a bill to ensure that executions can continue, even if lethal injection drugs aren't available. And the bill thus requires inmates now to choose between the electric chair and the firing squad as their manner of death. Do choose. It's a terrible question. If I were put in that position, I wouldn't choose. I would refuse to choose because my understanding of the law is that the inmate must choose. Now, I haven't read the entirety of the bill and there may be a provision for the inmate that refuses and somebody else chooses for them. But what are they going to do to me? Order me to be executed? Good point. I just thought I'd ask. Uh, that's not on the list of things that we're talking about today, what Brian would choose, but uh, I knew you'd have a good answer for that. So, I mean, we're talking about this, but isn't forcing them to choose cruel and unusual punishment itself? Well, I think it is. And, and I'm sure that this will be litigated by the capital attorneys that are going to fight this new provision, assuming that it gets through the legislature and assuming further that the governor signs it. There are 37 inmates on death row who have exhausted their appeals uh, to this point and are scheduled to be forced to decide and die. This is a question that the Supreme Court will likely take up given the nature of the law requiring a choice um, when the preferred method is unavailable. Now, there are only eight other states that allow death by electric chair and only three other states, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Utah, that allow the firing squad. Now, Utah is the most recent state to execute somebody by firing squad, having done so in 2010. Uh, I would say that putting somebody in this position to make that choice uh, when a method is still on the books uh, is cruel and unusual punishment. Because what they're saying now is, is that you have one of three choices. You can choose the electric chair or uh, lethal injection. And if you choose lethal injection and it's not available, then you have to choose again. And I think this repeated choice may be uh, an out for some of the more conservative justices to say, you know, making somebody choose isn't cruel and unusual punishment, but making them choose twice is. I can't even imagine what that must be like. So, and it just seems so weird considering some states are getting rid of the death penalty. How does this development align with the national trend against the imposition of the death penalty? 
it's absolutely out of step with the trend away from death and towards life. It's out of trend with the majority of the population's position against the death penalty. It's against the position of the conservatives that are pushing this through the South Carolina legislature, who call themselves life givers, who believe in the sanctity of life. It is eliminating the reason for execution moratoriums um, there in South Carolina and across the nation by adding this additional method of execution and a way to kill people in new and creative ways. There's a fair argument, and it's likely going to be litigated, that the pain associated with suffering from the electric chair or the firing squad are themselves Eighth Amendment violations. But until there's a federal order prohibiting these executions, each state is free to make their own rules and decide how they are going to kill their own citizens. Well, I really hope that we can get some unity going against the death penalty because as we've talked about in the past, there are mistakes and unfortunately you can't go back and fix it for somebody who died. <laughs> and you know, later on there might be some scientific evidence you know, that proves a whole bunch of people didn't commit crimes that they were accused of and convicted of. And the more people you kill, the more people you can't go back and help rectify that situation. That's exactly right, Erica. And, and as we've discussed previously on this show, it is highly likely that the United States has executed not one, but likely nearly half a dozen individuals who were actually innocent of their crimes. And that does not even take into account the individuals who may not have been worthy of receiving the death penalty due to developmental disabilities and other factors that should mitigate their conduct. Uh, not to mention, again, the gross uh, racial disparity in the application of the death penalty. Well, while we could be talking about the death penalty for the rest of our podcast today, we have a segment two, which we always have a segment two. And last week, we promised that we would be moving on to part four of our five-part look into field sobriety testing. And today, we're going to take a look at the one-legged stand. I can tell you right now, I would fail all of these tests, whether I was intoxicated or not. Standing on one leg is not easy for somebody without arches. Absolutely. That's a key problem with this test. So tell us officially, what is the one-legged stand? The one-legged stand test requires the driver to stand balanced on one leg for 30 seconds with their raised foot no less than six inches above the ground. It measures balance, coordination, and similar to the walk and turn test, divides the driver's attention. The officer will instruct the driver to stand with their feet together and their arms at their side with a direction to hold that position until told to do otherwise. This is that same trick that they used on us in the walk and turn test. The officer will then give the instructions on how to perform the test, particularly saying that you have to start with a number and instructing the driver to continue to count until they're told to stop. So, per, in, in, so saying, start with 1,000 and count from 1,000s. So count 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, and then keep the foot raised. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the officer will demonstrate the test 
And most law enforcement officers have this stripe down the side of their pants, which makes it appear like they're keeping their legs straight during the test. But what we know, because we've talked to them, is that they actually have a little bit of bagginess in their pants. And so as they're standing there, they're actually bending their balance leg and lowering themselves just an indiscernible amount to make the test that much easier. And one of the ways that people fail this test is that they stand with a locked knee, trying to balance on an absolutely straight leg, which is a little trick that the officers pull on us to try and get us to fail. Well, that doesn't seem fair. So can you tell us what are some of the other clues that the officer is looking for during this test? So officially, there's four clues that the officer is looking for during the one-legged stand test. Swaying during the balancing portion, using the arms to maintain balance or moving the arms away from the body, hopping and putting the raised foot down. Now, what the officer is actually going to say is, and, and note as quote unquote clues, uh, is that the driver started too soon, may have made a misstatement counting, or in some other way failed to follow the instructions. Now, these aren't official clues. They're not supposed to be counted, but you, but you make your best bet that they will absolutely blur their testimony on the stand and try and get a jury to believe that the same requirements of the walk and turn also apply in the one-legged stand and that these are all the same thing and that these things that aren't really clues are gonna be counted against the driver. Now, some other interesting things about this test, Erica, and, and what the officer is looking for is that balance and coordination, which is why certain individuals can't perform this test. Individuals that are over 65, individuals that are more than 50 pounds overweight, and those with middle ear, leg, or back issues can't perform this test. Likewise, people who have had traumatic brain injuries or recent concussions are likely unable to complete this test. Factors that can affect your ability to balance on one leg can be as wide ranging as your blood pressure and circulation, your blood sugar, anxiety, or even dehydration can all affect the body's ability to maintain balance. Wow, I had no idea that dehydration and anxiety could cause you to lose your balance, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're using almost all of your muscles to balance on one leg and to do that, you need to be fit and you need to be in your very best consciousness. I think, um, ask someone to do it maybe first thing in the morning after they've had a good breakfast and everything. But by the time somebody gets pulled over, oftentimes it's, it's at night and, and it's dark and there's a lot going on around them. There's a lot of distractions. I mean, it, it seems like a really crazy task to have someone do this. It sounds like it should just be in like a high school phys physical fitness test or something. Yeah, it's, it is, it is an interesting process to choose this as a way of determining whether somebody's impaired by drugs or alcohol on the side of the road. What are they going to ask them to do next? Cartwheels? And <laughs> this is crazy. So how can you defend 
yourself against the one-legged test stand? Well, from a one-legged most... stand test. Easy for you to say, Erica. From a most <laughs> basic perspective, you got to make sure that the officer is only citing you for cues or clues that are valid under the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration or NHTSA standards. So anything that isn't part of the standardized test, such as not raising the foot six inches from the ground, or if the clue isn't listed in the NHTSA manual, isn't, isn't standardized, isn't supported by reliability, and from a most basic level should be attacked as such. Review of the cruiser video is critically important because if the test isn't explained properly, if the test isn't on camera, you can't see whether it was explained properly or not. You can't see whether it was demonstrated properly or not. Several times over the course of my career, I should say dozens of times over the course of my career, I've been able to see on the cruiser video that officer's knee poking out through their pants. And you can tell that they're standing there with their knee bent and they've got a better base of balance by doing so that little cheat that we talked about earlier. So calling the officer out on that, calling the officer out in the motion hearing, getting them to admit that they had their knee bent and then calling them out during the jury trial. So on a most basic level, officers will try and tack on clues that aren't part of the standardized test. Um, things like not raising the foot six inches off the ground and other other indicia that of impairment that the officers claim aren't listed in the NHTSA manual. They're not standardized. They're not supported by reliability and they have to be attacked as such. Now, reviewing the cruiser video is equally important and looking for things like having the test conducted on camera, making sure the officer gave proper instructions, that they're audible there on the side of the road, and that they match the NHTSA standard instructions is a, is a critical aspect to challenging this test if somebody's performed it. Now, at best, this test in a controlled conditioned classroom is 65% accurate. When you add in the possibility of physical limitations, the events and particularities of being on the side of the road out in the environment of weather conditions, and the reliability of this test goes through the floor. Well, I can imagine that, and I would be on the floor if I were trying to do that test. So I hope that your answer to this next question is no, but um, should someone who is detained agree to do this test? No. A driver who is detained and suspected of OVI should not participate in any field sobriety tests, but especially the one-legged stand, which is one of the highest fail rates due to its complexity of balance, coordination, mental acuity, and number recall. Drivers should politely but firmly decline to participate in these tests and ask to be processed through with their charges or released and allowed to continue on their travel. I mean, that is really good to know because as we've discussed in the past, I mean, a lot of people just assume if a police officer asks you to do something, you have to do it because they're the authority figure. And so if you take these tests, just because they ask you to do it, you could 
really be ruining your chances of getting this conviction thrown out because they will use this unfair advantage against you and your life could be ruined. You're absolutely right, Erica. And the ability of officers to manipulate the results of these tests absolutely result in illegal convictions of innocent people. I appreciate you for engaging this conversation with me, Erica, today. And for everybody who's listening, thank you for taking the time and staying informed in order to keep informed about the biggest cases in the criminal injustice system, police and government accountability, especially those prosecutors in New York City. Field sobriety testing and everything you need to know about your constitutional and civil rights, check out the law office of ryanjones.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense. Look us up on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at T-L-O-B-J. And we'll be back next week with a sui generous perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as part five of our discussion of field sobriety tests, looking at non-standardized field sobriety tests, what they're used for, how they're conducted, and how we beat them in court. Erica, my grandfather always told me, don't do anything I wouldn't do, kid. And to that, when I part ways with my friends today, I add, if you do, and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended. <laughs>